0: Hi, I'm Dan Benjamin. I'm the founder of 5 by 5 And before we start today's show, I just wanted to take a minute to say thanks to all of you for helping make 5 by 5 what it is today, for helping me get uh, the best job in the entire world. You guys have rated the show on iTunes. You check out our sponsors every week. And uh, I just wanted to say thanks and thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to say a great big thanks, though, to all of you who've donated your hard-earned money to help us out here with the big move from Central Florida to Austin, Texas, which is where we are now. If you'd like to help support 5x5, you can do that by going to 5x5.tv slash donate. And thanks. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple. Related technologies and businesses, nothing is so perfect that it cannot be obliterated by my co-host John Syracusa. No Z. I'm Dan Benjamin, and this is episode number 23. We'd like to say thanks to uh, Omni Group. And also thanks to uh, Simple Casts for making this show possible. We'll tell you about them as the show progresses. John Syracuse, welcome back. Thank you, Dan. How are you? Tired. You sound no different.
1: Uh, maybe I just always sound tired.
0: Perpetual tiredness, unhealthy condition for the human being. Yes. Why are you so tired? Up late writing your lion piece?
1: You got it. I've been writing, writing a lot, writing and not sleeping as much. Uh, But we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think.
0: Oh, okay. I thought we could jump right in. Yeah, well,
1: we got follow-up.
0: Okay. What you got?
1: So, uh, I think it was last show or maybe two shows ago, talked about Apple's data centers using Azure, Microsoft's Azure technology product thing. Yeah. Uh, What is that thing?
0: A lot of people didn't know what that was and why, why it was important, other than yeah. the fact that it's Microsoft software, which you would think, of course, Apple would never want to use that, right?
1: Yeah, I was trying to figure out what it was, too. If you try to read Microsoft's site, it's kind of enterprisey and impenetrable. So I asked some people who know about Microsoft technologies, and the, the analogy they gave me in the quick two-minute uh, that I had to talk to them about it before the show was that it was like Google App Engine. Uh, that doesn't help if you don't know what Google App Engine is, but I do know what Google App Engine is, so I can at least explain that. And, This will uh, give my understanding of what Azure is. So App Engine is Google's thing where you write an application that talks through a set of APIs that they provide, and those APIs talk to Google's infrastructure that you you can't purchase or buy, but they will let you run your application on top of it if you write to these APIs. So, for example, you have an API for talking to Bigtable, which is their database thing actually i don't even know if it talks to big Tail, but some sort of database api where you you write to it and then they store your stuff for you and then uh they run your application on their host uh, on their servers and what are the services they provide there maybe they do a file no i don't think they even do a file system thing but anyway it's a way of letting third party applications use google's infrastructure and they charge you for it at uh you know there's a free version and i think they charge you for it uh when you go over a certain amount of uh, requests or whatever so azure sounds like Microsoft's equivalent of that where you write to a set of API's Microsoft provides, and they run on top of services that Microsoft Azure provides, which are like how to distribute your application across a data center and uh, how to access a database instead of just talking to a single SQL server, you talk to a more distributed kind of uh, concept of a database. So the, the diagrams are very fuzzy and full of clouds and cylinders and stuff like that. So I really don't know how it actually works. But that was my understanding of Azure. Now, the and, and the the story I linked to in the last show notes I think was someone who had looked at uh, packets going over the wire from their iPhone or some beta iPhone or whatever where they were using iCloud services and they were looking at basically HTTP headers right and they saw ones that had the telltale signs of Microsoft Azure because they they put little headers in there you know that just spell it out Microsoft blah 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 Azure blah 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 uh, and it seems like unlikely that. Apple would be adding those to throw people off, so they must be actually be talking to some kind of Azure service. Now, uh, after that show, I found another story that said, this is on WinSuperSite, so maybe these guys know what they're talking about because it's a Windows site, that the evidence was not conclusive and that it could just be that Apple is using Microsoft and Amazon, for that matter, uh, as part of their content delivery network. So in other words, they, you know, Microsoft is hosting these files but only in the capacity as a CDN, and that Apple has the real copy of it. And so the reason you're seeing these Azure headers is because they're being served out of a data center that runs Microsoft Azure, but it's not necessarily Apple's data center, uh, and it's just, you know, functioning as a CDN. That seems perfectly plausible to me, too. Uh, There was another story that I didn't link, but it was older. It was about the former head of Microsoft's Azure, or Maybe it wasn't Azure, maybe it was just data Center. But some, some bigwig from Microsoft who was involved with Azure was hired onto Apple in April of this year. That doesn't mean he was brought to Apple to do Azure-related things, but it seems strange and coincidental that Apple would hire away a Microsoft Data Center guy if they didn't think having some sort of Microsoft Data Center product experience was useful. Uh, and, and then I heard a, a rumor that that guy had actually left Apple since then. But I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm confused about the personnel at Apple. Apple really doesn't announce their personnel decisions publicly, so you have to glean all this information by digging through LinkedIn pages and stuff.
0: Doesn't this just go back, though, to the right tool for the right job conversation that who cares? This is the right tool. They want to use it. So what? They just use it. Or maybe, yeah, they're, they, maybe they're building their own thing and they did, couldn't have it ready in time. Yeah. Same with it. You know, for years, there was no iWork. And then when they came out with it, it was great. Keynote was the the blockbuster hit of that thing. And everybody's oh, keynote's so much better than PowerPoint, and that that was like uh, the, the big turning point for them. Maybe they're working on something like this, but it's behind the scenes. Who care? Why is it so bad? What is the significance, John? What is the significance of them using Azure? Let's say they're really using it. So what?
1: I think we covered it in the last show. It's not so much it, the fact that they're using Azure is just sensational, and that it's a Microsoft technology. But the the things, the real thing that. You think, you think nobody, off, nobody in the whole the of
0: platform? Apple uses Microsoft Excel for anything? There's not one guy using Excel? So what?
1: No, no. But I'm saying for when – you're, when you're making a data center, all the other guys are not using off-the-shelf software, and Apple is using it. Uh, so that makes them different. And also in the server space, Windows is not dominant. Uh, Unix is the dominant server. Right. Platform. So it's it's strange in two ways. So the Apple is being different in those two ways. That they're using they're using off-the-shelf software instead of building, and they're using Microsoft when the dominant thing that most people use is Unix. That's why it's interesting. But it may not even be true because again, we have no actual information. This is all just people trying to figure things out by reverse engineering things and looking for you know clues in the pictures and stuff like that. So we don't know for sure. But I just wanted to follow up on that just to say that there was some the some Windows experts had a credible explanation for how Apple could actually not be using Azure in its own data centers, but simply be using a CDN that, that uses Azure. So, uh, next topic—a follow-up from way back. You remember when we did a show where we talked about things that were wrong with different companies, and the last company was Pixar.
0: Yeah, we talked about uh, we talked about Google yep, and Facebook, uh, and Facebook and Pixar was the one that I said there's no way anything could be wrong with it.
1: Right. So my, my complaint about Pixar was that they were not taking enough risks in their creative output. And my evidence for that was that they had yet to have a movie that was not good. And it was kind of like the, you know, the idea was they were using engineering principles to ensure that they never produced a bad movie. But those same principles were preventing them from ever making a movie that was as great as some of the greatest movies that Pixar itself admires. Right. So the, the sequel to Cars, Cars 2 just opened. And I have a link in the show notes to the Rotten Tomatoes page for cars. Let me just look at what it's at now. And the percentage on the Rotten Tomatoes page is currently at 35%. I, I loaded this uh, 15 minutes ago and it was at 36. So it was actually dropped. And yesterday it was at 38. And for those that don't know, 100% is the greatest movie ever on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes aggregates reviews from multiple sites. Uh, 35 is not good. Just
0: to sort of set some parameters, set a framework for this, uh, what does the original Star Wars get on this one?
1: I've got to look some stuff up then.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I, I want you know, to set a framework if the, what is the orig- because this scale is meaningless. So 100 is the greatest movie, right. But what are movies that we like as, as fellow geeks?
1: So A New Hope is 94%. Okay. Cars 1 is 74%.
0: Okay. What about like uh, Toy Story? Or th- Toy Story 3 even?
1: So Toy Story 3, which is, you know, a, a sequel just like Toy Story 2. In fact, it's it's worse because it's a 3. Uh, 99% for Toy Story 3.
0: That's a great movie.
1: Cried a little bit. So a lot of people have been saying, Hey, you know, you, you wanted Pixar to have a failure. Isn't this what you wanted? Well, that's...
0: Yeah, uh, you should I be d- turning over in your grave. You're so happy.
1: No, because I mean, like half the time they're joking, but sometimes like they should just go back and listen to the thing. The the idea wasn't that fa- <laughs> failure is the goal; therefore, you should try to fail. Like it, the that was not the point. There's bad logical connections being made there. The idea was that they were not taking enough risks, and the evidence for that was the lack of failure. By changing the evidence to have a failure, does not prove that you are now taking enough risks. It's nonsensical. Uh, so, if they I, first of all, I haven't seen Cars Two, so I can't make any judgment about whether this is what I'm looking for or not. But I will speculate that if Cars Two fails because it's a timid run-of-the-mill sequel, the, or you know, or just simply was trying to do exactly the same thing as every other Pixar movie but didn't do it as well, then that's not what I was looking for. If Cars Two is getting slammed in reviews because they really tried to do something daring and different and it failed, then maybe they did do what I was looking for. I haven't seen the movie. Uh, I think my son is actually seeing the movie right now as we speak, so I'll ask him for a review, but I'm not sure uh, how much I'll get out of him about it. Uh, but when I do see it, I will chime in to say which of those two scenarios is actually happening. Uh, since it is a sequel, and since this is a sequel to the movie with, I think, the lowest rating on Rotten Tomatoes of any Pixar movie, not that 74% is bad, but all the others are in the 90s and stuff, uh, I'm leaning towards it being bad for boring reasons. In other words, they were aiming for the same Pixar formula they always do, and they just didn't hit it for whatever reasons.
0: What do they give on on this Rotten Tomatoes thing that you're talking about? What do they give A Few Good Men? Check that one out. And then then Shawshank Redemption. You want to make a prediction for A Few Good Men? I will say it's in the low 70s. 83. I'm starting, maybe this site's... Worth looking at what about Shawshank Sh- Redemption? Shawshank eighty nine. Okay, that should be higher.
1: Yeah, seriously. Who's the people who are like not liking the Shawshank Redemption? I'd love I to read those like reviews. People with no no hearts and no minds. What Shawshank of, was used to be at the top of the IMDb rankings for like the best movie ever.
0: It is. It's one of the best movies.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, when you aggregate stuff, I'm not sure how much this tells you because if they decide to pick a bunch of reviews from a bunch of idiots, they could drag down or raise the score of anything. But this is just kind of give you a rough estimate of like how how well-reviewed is this movie.
0: People are wondering if, if I haven't seen Rotten Tomatoes. I know about it. I just, you know, I'm just not in front of a keyboard. Yeah, so.
1: Metacritic is another site. I just happened to go to the Rotten Tomatoes one because I saw uh, someone mention that it
0: was getting slammed. You would think a site called Rotten Tomatoes that the higher number would be more rotten.
1: Yeah, yeah. The name of the site...
0: Like the high, like if, how rotten is it? Oh, it's a 100 on the rotten scale. Well, it must be really rotten. So you'd think they would inverse the numbers.
1: I think that would be, it's only confusing to people who think about it and that doesn't include most people. So most people just go to the site, they see a bar, the more filled it gets, hundred percent is better because hundred percent is better in school, so on and so forth.
0: No, I understand why they're doing it that way. I just, they should change the name to fresh tomatoes. Yeah. I'll send an email. So uh, and like you, like you, I don't expect the CEO of the company to change their <laughs> their name just because I I send them a Google search result.
1: So unfair to me about that on the other shows. <laughs> okay, uh, the final bit of follow up I have is, and this this may be the last time we ever mention this in the show. So all you toaster haters, you've just got one last little push to get through or skip over and then you probably won't ever have to hear about toasters again. Probably. So, (laughs) uh, as we know, you can go review the past shows uh, about my problems with toasters, and then uh, Marco and Merlin were nice enough to give me a toaster at WWDC, and they shipped it to me, and it finally arrived, and I've used it, and now here is my brief, I will try to be brief, Oh, boy. review! Very excited. This is not the main topic for the show. This is just follow-up. I will try to get through it. So, first thing I want to start with is that Despite everything I'm going to say in this review, I'm very grateful for this toaster. Oh, boy.
0: that, that doesn't That's mm-hmm. not a good way to open.
1: The, uh, WWC was just, was just an amazing trip. Uh, uh, you know, and as much <laughs> as I enjoyed the technical sessions and everything, it was really just meeting the people that was the best thing about that. And, and Marco and Merlin's toaster gift was just really the icing on the cake. So I will always treasure that memory. Uh, and even if it was the worst toaster in the world, I would still keep this toaster for sentimental reasons alone. Thankfully, this is not the worst toaster in the world. In fact, I think this toaster is so much better than my old toaster, so so different in every possible way than my old toaster that I'm surprised the two appliances didn't annihilate each other when they were brought into the same room. <laughs> Actually, I think that was a physics joke. I'm, I think I'm breaking my own rules here. All right, scratch scratch the annihilation part. So the first test for the toaster was I throw a throw bagel in because I had a, a fresh stock of imported bagels. Yes, I only get my bagels from New York. Massachusetts bagels are no good. I'm sorry. Uh. And cut one in half, put it in there, turn the thing to the bagel setting, press the button, and it put up a timer that had 3 minutes and 50 seconds. So, if you remember, my old toaster took 5 minutes and 8 seconds to do a piece of toast <laughs> from cold start. <laughs> okay. This one was doing a bagel in 350, so already it's got a leg up. Right after that, it put something else in. I think it was another bagel, or maybe it was a piece of toast. And then the timer was only 2 minutes because this toaster is smart enough to know that the heat carried over from the previous toasting session will shorten the time for the next toasting session. Um, a lot of things about it. It's got the, the rack that's inside it is like five times thicker than the previous rack. It's not just like a set of spindly wires poorly <laughs> together. It's this big, heavy metal. It's probably like an oven rack, a miniature little oven rack. Uh, and this one has the quartz heating elements instead of those steel things that I had. They are they look kind of clear and thicker, and and they start glowing orange way faster than the steel ones did, as, as described and predicted by our uh, toaster engineer who wrote us in. Uh, I did the toast test where you put four slices of toast in there. Very even browning, nice even brown across all of them. No hot spots in the middle or the sides or anything like that. Uh, and a timer, you know. So the, the toaster has a little screen on on the front of it that shows that time. You know, that's when I push the button, I can see three minutes fifty seconds or whatever. That timer is great. That's the best feature of the toaster. Like. Uh, the first thing I noticed, and the first thing my wife commented on too, that the timer is great. You would think when you look at it, like who needs it—an LEDs or LCD, whatever it is, screen back of that LCD screen on a toaster. It's just frivolous and stupid, and a waste of money and some gadget thing. No, it is great being able to see how long your toast has to go because just, you're just if we've been spending our whole lives pushing down the little lever or turning the (laughs) dial. And you have no idea how long you have. You can look at the dial and see, does it look like it's in like a minute and a half or 30 seconds left when it's ticking along or even the push down thing. You never knew. So you're like, can I go out of the room for a second? Will it ding? You know, timer tells you, no guesswork. This is exactly how long it's going to take. So uh, great, great first experience with the toaster. Uh, Doing its job, no fuss, no muss. Uh, But this this toaster is not without its faults. Now, again, I'm going to describe some faults of this toaster, but let's keep it in context here. This toaster is so much better than my old toaster that it's, it's just in a different league entirely. The fact that I can find faults in it doesn't really mean anything because I can find faults in anything. But it's kind of like this is the first toaster I've had that is worth criticizing. <laughs> because now, now, I'm, now, now I'm picking nits because the previous toaster was just a total loss. Like it just didn't even do the basic job of toasting. It was a horrible piece of crap. This this is not, and it makes the parts where it falls down all the more glaring. Uh, so the first one isn't really a flaw with the toaster. It's just a mismatch with my needs. Uh, the, the It's got one of those pizza bumps in the back, you know, where they make the little round cutout thing so you can stick a big disc in right. there. It's, not, it's, it's not, not,
0: a, not as big and pronounced as some of the other ones. Yeah,
1: it is not a big pizza bump, so that's why it's not really a big deal. But it is there, and I actually didn't realize it was there because... It is so small, it doesn't stick out. Um, and the toaster is not that deep anyway, so it's, n- it's not a big deal. But it does have a bump, which I could do without if it was there. So <laughs> the, no- the knobs on the front, there's like a dial and a push-button thing with a tiny right. thing, whatever. They are made of plastic made to look like metal. The rest of the toaster is all stainless steel looking you know shiny metal or matte finish, actually. And these, these knobs look like metal. They're silvery, shiny plastic, but they're made of plastic. Totally ruins the all-metal stainless steel aesthetic of the toaster. Big mistake to do the plastic knobs. Do you and think they
0: did that because they were concerned about heat conductivity? Because I've wondered well, the yes. same thing.
1: So I was going to say, I think they did for heat conduction the handle. Because the handle itself is a metal tube, but the handle is connected to the door with plastic. And I thought maybe they did that to keep the heat from the door glass from, from conducting through to the metal handle. Right. Which would make sense, but I'm not entirely sure because I have pans with metal handles and they seem to not get hot unless they're on for a really long time. But anyway, the dials, I don't think they have that concern with because the, the area around the dials doesn't really get hot. Uh, and they're only connected by a single, you know, stick on the inside, I'm assuming. So I'm not sure how much heat would be conducted through that. Uh, but the, the second thing about the knobs is that not only are they plastic, but they're, they're flimsy feeling. They have lots of slop where you move them and nothing is happening. And they, you know, sort of twist on along long axes that they shouldn't twist. Now, this is a thing that, especially for high-end toasters like this, or medium end. I don't know how high end this toaster is, but like, it seems like uh, everything else about it's solid quality construction. It performs great, and then you put these plastic knobs on it. Now, car makers know how important this is because what car makers, even when they make your the, the crappy car like a Toyota Tercel or, or a Honda Civic or whatever, they know that the things you touch on the product are so important that they have to feel expensive. And they they invest lots of time and energy into making the radio dial, the the, the wiper stalks, uh, you know, the headline the the headlight on off thing feel expensive. And expensive feeling means no slop, smooth glide, no sort of scratching type of action, a, you know, strong clicking into positive position when you change from one setting to the other. And car makers spend the money on those switches that you touch. They take it out of other things like the trunk lids, which they make cheaper. You know? So they, they subtract money from the, from the arguably more important parts of the car to make the things that you touch feel expensive because they know how much that matters every day when you're using the device that would have been a good move on this toaster. I don't Maybe take the money out of some other aspect of the toaster, maybe use cheaper metal on the back or something, or I don't know where they could take it out, but put it into those dials because it's worthwhile, because those are the things you touch uh, every single day and they do uh, detract from the experience. Uh, The interface, like I didn't have to read the manual to do the interface, which is, you know, a gold star right off the bat, because if I have to go to the manual for an appliance, I'm pissed off. So I did not have to read the manual to figure out how to use this appliance. Although I did look at the manual to make sure I hadn't missed anything, and I hadn't. it's So I would say it's fairly intuitive. But there's a little bit too much happening on the screen. See, I would like the screen to tell me information, like the time, but I don't need it. I, I don't want to have to be using the dial to manipulate things on the screen. It's a little bit, feels a little bit like uh, setting one of those cheap digital alarm clocks where you press the, hold down the alarm button and you press this other button to change the hour, and then you press this other button and now you're changing the minutes. And it's just it's too <laughs> modal. You know what I mean? Like... I feel like you could get away with just having one or two dobs and niles. Uh, dobs and niles. Yeah, that should be the title of the show. knobs and dials. Uh, and so I could just manipulate the physical controls and completely know exactly what I'm doing without ever having to look at the screen. The screen should be giving feedback to me, but it should only be optional. It shouldn't be something I'm required to look at to change settings. Uh, so that's my complaint about the interface. And the final thing is, I don't know if you've noticed, it may just be my model or my particular instance of this model, or it may be that this changes over time as the toaster kind of breaks in is that if you bring the door all the way down and just you know, press the handle to the counter in front of you or whatever, so it's down as far as it can go, and then take your finger off gently, the door will slowly close. Which is bad because if you open the toaster up and reach your hand in there to pull out something and don't hold the door down with your other hand, the, the door will lift up and burn the bottom of your wrist.
0: I, never. I've, n- I've never noticed that. It doesn't, doesn't seem to do that for me.
1: So, I mean, obviously some spring is pulling the door closed and that spring is going to weaken over time. So maybe this is just something that happens with a new toaster. Maybe mine has a particularly strong spring or maybe you just haven't noticed. You should try after the show to go to your toaster, open the door all the way, hold it all the way down to the counter, wait, you know, debounce it and everything. (laughs) Wait for it to settle and then take your finger off of it and see if it slowly closes itself. Uh, Both my wife and I noticed this. We haven't burned ourselves, but we've noticed that if we hadn't been holding on the door, it would have burned us.
0: I'm pretty sure that mine doesn't do that anymore. If, yeah, if, it I, ever, if it ever did.
1: Yeah, it may be one of those things that just breaks in.
0: Maybe you've got a super spring in there.
1: It's not super, it's, it's not like it slams cut, but it slowly, like it sneaks up on you. That's did why you tweak I, uh,
0: the spring yourself? Have you modified it, this?
1: I did not modify. I was thinking of like, if I did want to modify this, would I have to open, you know, could I get in there and find that spring? Uh, um, it's not a big deal. So those are my complaints about this toaster. But they're all minor in the basic capacities as a toaster it performs admirably and it looks it looks great too even with the plastic knobs that you know don't look like the metal the whole toaster just looks so much better than my old horrible thing Uh, the only trouble i have with installation is that i had to buy one of those flush mounted plug things because my plug for the toaster is right behind the toaster and the plug for this toaster is a big honking 3 prong thing with a hole for your finger to go in and when it sticks straight into the wall it bumps into the back of
0: the toaster. So what did you get get there for that?
1: You can buy like a, it's a three-prong plug, but it's very low profile. It's very flat to the wall. It only extends about a centimeter out and the the wire goes off to the side. And it's like a little pigtail. And at the end of that little five, six-inch pigtail is the regular three-prong plug that I plug the toaster plug into. Okay. So the end of the toaster saga. Toaster saga ends with me getting better toast faster. With more feedback on the screen
0: now, using the Rotten Tomatoes scale, how would you rate this toaster? What how how rotten or not or fresh is it?
1: So, I am going to give my old toaster a twenty, okay, uh, and I am going to give this one like an eighty-seven.
0: That's almost as good as Shawshank Redemption, if yeah, it were, were a toaster.
1: Rotten Tomatoes is wrong on, on Shawshank <laughs> Redemption. Shawshank <laughs> Redemption is like a ninety-nine. All right. Uh, I have two small things before we go to our main topic. These are not follow-up. They're just mini topics.
0: Do, do you want to do the first sponsor now and get that out of the way? Sure. Go for it. And thats I shouldn't say get it out of the way. I mean, that's not how I feel because they pay the bills. Yes. So we're appreciative of them. But it's uh, its Omni Group, one of John Syracuse's favorite app makers. They make uh, productivity applications. They do it just for Mac OS X and for the iPhone and the iPad. Nothing else. This is their one... Area of focus, which is something that John can respect. And do you agree? Do you respect them more yeah. because they just focus on, on the Mac and iOS stuff?
1: I don't care where they focus. I only care how good their apps are, and their apps are really good.
0: Well, they're known, they're known for that, for making really good apps and uh, what, what's called gold standard customer support. They really have awesome support where you deal with real human beings. And, uh, and, and they're all geeks. Every single one of those people over there is – I mean, they, they make John look normal. That's how geeky they are. But they really care. They sweat the details. Uh, And and you can take a look at one of my favorite uh, Omni Group apps. It's Omni Focus. It's designed to help you capture your thoughts and allow you to store, manage, and process them into actionable to-do items. So if you're a fan of a getting things done system or if you just have your own system, it doesn't matter. Uh, and you can, you can sync this stuff. It'll work over a local network. You can currently use Mobile Me, or even just a, a standard web dev server that you or your own company or work group hosts. They're, uh, they're just awesome. And uh, they're available. It's available today. You can get OmniFocus, of course, for the Mac like you've always been able to. But not that long ago, they came out with it for the iPhone and the iPad. You can go to Omnigroup.com to check this out or just go to the iTunes or the Mac App Store and search for OmniFocus, one word, and we'd like to say thanks very much to those guys for making the show possible. All right, two topics, you said. Too many topics than then the main topic.
1: So three topics. Yeah. So the first mini topic, I finally saw Mac Defender in the wild. Do you know the Mac Defender, Mac malware thing from, I guess, a couple of weeks ago?
0: Yeah, the, the thing that, if there's anybody who still doesn't know about this, it's a little... Uh, a little thing that loads in a web page. It looks like a dialog box. It, it tells you you need to install something. It makes you install it uh, if you're, you know, if you're prepared to enter your your administrative password. But then they came out with one that did, didn't require administrative password. Which, which one did you see?
1: Well, so I'd never I'd never followed this story. I'd heard your podcast about it, but I'd never actually like clicked on any of the links in my news reader to read about it because I really don't pay attention to Mac malware stories. It just get me worked up over nothing. If it's if it's a legitimate issue, I will find out about it from like friends or more trusted sources than just these random sensational things about Mac Defender or stories from virus companies. Uh, so, so again, I had never didn't know what to expect from this, but I, I ended up I think it was a Google Image thing or something that, seemed, that seems to be where they all come from, and I ended up seeing this thing pop onto the screen. that looked like this little dialog box that was telling me. I don't know what it was telling me, some, something about installing something or other. And I said, oh, this must be Mac Defender because they were saying it brings up a fake dialog box. And usually the virus fake dialog boxes are meant to look like windows. And they're obviously you can...
0: Right, this you know, one really describe. looks like a Mac window. And I right, well,
1: that's what, that's what I had heard about it from the little summaries I'd seen on my newsreader. But this dialog box... Well, so that dialog box comes up in the web browser and then right in front of it, sort of off to the side comes up the mac os 10 dialog box saying this file will damage your computer and it has the move to the trash button because right. i've you know since had the os update that detects this so my operating system that detected that this was harmful and it was bringing up the put in trash button so i could see a real mac os 10 dialog box and the fake one right next to each other hmm. and i don't understand why they couldn't just copy and paste the graphics from a real Mac OS 10 dialogue box into the fake one. Yeah. The fake dialogue box look awful. The gray was the wrong color. The cancel button wasn't even like rounded. Like, it's not rocket science. Take a screenshot of a real Mac OS 10 dialogue. They're not even trying. This is the worst virus ever. The proportions <laughs> were off, you know? Just go to Interface Builder, lay out a dialogue according to the the Aqua Conventions. It will give you little guidelines to do it. There's your fake dialogue box. Take a screenshot of it. Just make it a big GIF. I don't care. But Or GIF. <laughs> make it a big JPEG or whatever, a ping. It's not, it's not that hard to make a fake dialog box. This is the worst showing of any Mac malware I've ever seen. I, I, I'm not going to say, oh, I can't believe people fall for this. Obviously, pe- not everyone knows every single pixel of what macOS 10 looks like. It, it's it's convincing enough for other people. But what's the what's the point in not taking the three seconds to screenshot a real dialog box and put in your own text? Like it's not that much extra effort, and it seems like you'd get you'd increase your chances of getting more victims.
0: I uh, think that, but I think the people for whom uh, this is a concern, the people who will see this and say, wow, yeah, I I have some virus here, and believe the dialogue box, those people couldn't tell the difference between the real one and the fake one, even if they were next to each other.
1: Right, yeah, no, I believe most people will be convinced by this, but why not? Like, it seems harder to me to make a bad-looking fake dialogue than to make a good-looking fake dialogue. You know what I mean? They had to custom-draw... Or find sources for these widgets and make it – just, it just seems stupid. So the moral of the story is virus makers are dumb, and this is a dumb virus, and my computer threw it in the trash for me. All right.
0: Next mini topic. That was a mini topic.
1: Yeah. I got just little ones here. Uh, this is an ongoing peeve with – not with Twitter itself, but with services that are related to Twitter. And this is my grumpy old man thing. Kids these days, why do they do this stuff? So every time I want to go somewhere to do something, like there was some game that everyone was playing, and I go to the site, I'll sign up for this game, try it out, and it says sign in with your Twitter username because it apparently uses Twitter in some capacity. And so you go to the little sign in thing and it does the OAuth thing. This is a website. It Does the OAuth thing and it shows you a little dialog and it says that we're sending you to Twitter for authorization. And Twitter brings up the little page that says application Foo wants to do the following: read your Twitter time- timeline update your Twitter timeline and, you know, uh, respond to direct messages or whatever. I stop reading as soon as it says, update your Twitter timeline. Why, Why in the world would I ever let anyone other than me tweet as me? Now, this seems to be accepted by tons of people because this is not the first service I've seen this for, I guess it's going on a year now or however long they've supported this thing. Every time I see one of those pages, I'm like, Pfft, no, you can't tweet as me. Now, if that, if the phrasing was changed to say, this service would like to send email as you, would you say, oh, sure, yeah, you can send email as me. Now, I know email has no authentication. There's no way to prove that it's you or, or whatever. It's just the, the principle of the matter. Would you let any program from a website pretend that it's you through any communication medium? Please let this program make telephone calls as you. You know, And, and of course, since Twitter has no good metadata, there's no way to distinguish a tweet you know, from the perspective of people reading your timeline and a common Twitter client, they can't tell whether this was you tweeting some stupid shill for some company or <laughs> a website automatically. Why in the world would... I have never said yes to one of those things, and I never will. Why would I let someone tweet as me? And why do people let applications tweet as them? It just seems insane to me. I'm sure no one would ever let any website email as them. if They said, we'd like to send email pretending to be you. I and mean, yeah, We might email your friends and say, hey you know, check out this site or whatever. And then your friends will say, did you mail me some spam about this site thing or whatever? And then you'll say, yeah, I'll let that site uh, send email for me. That's, that would never happen in a million years, but somehow it's okay with Twitter. Have you ever said yes to one of those dialogue boxes? I,
0: I never have, no. And the, the idea that it could do that always made, made me kind of nervous. I don't like um, that.
1: Someone in the chat room says that people reading your timeline on, on random Twitter clients can tell that it was a website doing it because the client, basically the user agent, the metadata will say that it was tweeted from yeah. website XYZ. I don't know many Twitter clients that pro- show that information prominently. I guess the website does. The website
0: have, does if you well, mouse a little over italic it.
1: like text and you know, small text underneath it. But for people using desktop clients and stuff, they don't see that. And even though it's right in your face... On every single tweet on the website, you know, from via Twitter or or Wire or whatever your application is, people don't read that. It's total invisibility. You know, some of the the ones
0: that 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 do it, like I'll give you an example, Gowalla, Austin-based company, by the way. Uh, If you if you allow the Gowalla app, like let's say you check in somewhere and you have it uh, configured to tweet it for you, which you can toggle that on or off. For example, you go and check in somewhere and you say what you're doing. It, it'll it, it could say like i'm here doing this and then it'll have a link and really you're just using that client to tweet it out it's not it's not really doing it independently for you you're, you're activating it you're causing that to happen same thing with Instagram which you yeah, know you don't you probably don't have because you don't have an iPhone but the same thing with Instagram if you take a picture and you want to share it you can choose to tweet it or push it up to Flickr or whatever and someone
1: in the someone in the chat room pointed that out too that yeah what they what in theory, what they're saying is, oh, this is just so on our website or through our service or through our application, you can send a tweet. But that's not how it works authentication-wise. They can send tweets as you whenever the hell they want.
0: Yes, they could. And that's and that's you see the see thing. see it happen
1: all the time. Like you're there playing some iPhone game, and then you go back to your Twitter, and you see this this game tweeted when I got a high score or when I picked up a power-up or whatever. Now I look like a tool on Twitter. Right. The implication, no, no, though,
0: is the, that the, the services that I use to do it, and I, I really named the only two that I do use to do it, which is Instagram and and koala, those you're you're in control of that and yeah I, I mean i realize that they could they could do that in independently or autonomously but the the concept is that they won't and if they did i think people would get pretty upset but there are yeah. apps and services that, that will do it like you said like oh i you know i got a free man in uh, this game i was playing and it, it now it's tweeting about it or i discovered this uh treasure or whatever you know you're the gamer whatever happens in a game.
1: And you're and you're supposed to just you're supposed to trust the companies like well, if you don't like it, you know, don't give permission to companies that you don't trust. And you can revoke the permission at any time on Twitter's website. It's the magic of their authentication system. But that doesn't reassure me at all because even if I trust the company now, who knows what will happen down the road when they need to go for another round of funding or figure out they figure out they need to find a way to make money or they get hacked or, or just, you know, it's just not going to happen. No one tweets as me but me. Uh, and it annoys me that I can't participate in whatever the hot new game feature whatever is because they insist on having that permission it'd be nice if these websites said if you don't want to use the features where we tweet as you or where you proxy tweet through our service or whatever then you can still join our application program or whatever just don't give that particular permission but they never offer that because it seems that people don't care facebook has trained everybody to assume they have no privacy and you know you don't think even facebook lets you lets other companies write things as if they were coming from you on your Facebook. That's another equivalent that people probably wouldn't like, but I don't know. It annoys me. So that was my second
0: mini topic. Now, I don't I don't know what your big topic is for today. So I can, I can only speculate that it's going to be about grills. Is it about grills? Uh,
1: I, heard, I heard the grill stuff going on there. I hate to disappoint you, but I don't really know too much about grills. I have a grill, but I'm not a... Hardcore grilling kind of guy.
0: It, do you suppose that one is the cause of the other? That if you had the right uh, grill, you might be.
1: I've I've almost done the grilling thing, like because I know I know where that. It's kind of like doing the camera thing. Like it, I know where the camera path leads. <laughs> like, I would like you know a 5D Mark II and a whole bunch of lenses and all, but just I'm just saying no, I just I stick with my crappy middle of the road cameras that I have because I can't, I can't do that. So, with the grilling thing, many times I've almost bought like a quote unquote real grill and a chimney starter and the whole nine yards.
0: Well, I have I, have, have, I would like to introduce the grilling topic as a mini topic, and then I have a, a second mini topic which may, in fact, turn out to be your main topic but uh, how, here's
1: how much time do you have today because i got a long main topic unlimited
0: main... unlimited time i I, right. I feel like we should lay our vengeance down upon those who uh who complain that the show is too long uh and go as long as we feel like today but here here's the thing these are very short topics the first one is related to the grills marco um co-host of uh, build and analyze another show on 5x5 tv that you should be listening to if you don't uh, shame on you he uh, just got a grill. Now that he's a homeowner living in Brooklyn, he needs to, uh, needed to get a grill. So he purchased a grill. He didn't ask what kind of grill. In, in you know Very much, this is just the way that he is. He would never ask a friend for advice before doing it. Just go out on his own and do it. Which is actually, he, and in typical fashion, he made it the right choice. He didn't need to ask. He got a Weber gas grill. So we're going to be talking about that, but I wanted to know it. So, so right away, we, I can go into this conversation with him knowing that your grills are off your radar. You don't even want to talk about them. You don't have an opinion, even.
1: No, I've got opinions, but like I don't have experience. Uh, the grill I have is just, you know, a run-of-the-mill, plain, boring gas grill. And you know, since I own it, I of course have specific complaints about my grill. But <laughs> but I don't you don't see care. That that How often big, do you use yeah. your grill? Well, the, the thing I care – I use it a lot during the summer. As soon as you know, the, the weather gets warm, we grill every week at least – well, if the weather is nice, once or twice a week, sometimes more, just because it's convenient and, and fast. It's a good way to make family dinners uh, after work because it doesn't take that long to grill things most of the time. I, I grill – I, I,
0: I would say year-round, John, I grill at a minimum once a day, sometimes more. Occasionally there will be a day go by where we don't grill, but we grill almost everything.
1: You're living in the sun belt down there, so you can get away with that. So the the main complaint I have about my grill and about all grills I've ever owned is durability. And it's simply because the ash that's produced from cooking food, if you don't clean it out really well, it mixes with water. And I believe it becomes basic. Someone in the chat room can correct me. It's either acidic or basic. But either way, it it eats away at the metal of your grill. So you have to be really good about cleaning your grill and not letting any moisture get in. Otherwise, the metal just turns to dust and rust uh, pretty quickly.
0: Is it so humid trying, up there where, where you are?
1: Uh, yes, very humid. And I've been trying to keep this grill. I've had it for years, maybe five years, six years, maybe maybe seven years. long time I've had this grill, and it's, it's hanging in there. But the worst part about it is that when it comes time to get replacement parts, like if I want to replace the little tubes that the gas comes out of or whatever because they're rotting, it's so hard to find them, or the little heat shield things that the juices fall down onto. You can buy replacement parts. You can find them online, but they're like 90 bucks. A pair, so 180 bucks. You know, I'm not going to spend 180 bucks to repair my old grill. I'll just buy a new one for 400 or whatever. Uh, so that's kind of disappointing. Okay. That, that it's that it's they're expensive and it's hard to find replacement parts. And I think if I ever did buy a super expensive, like a good grill, for 800 or whatever they cost or something, I'm afraid that it would not last any longer than the other kind of grill. And you know, so I just stick with the credit grill I have and try to keep it up on its two legs.
0: Okay, well, that th- this will be a preface then, because I'm anticipating that Marco will want to talk about. The girl in the next show, so now we know where you stand. And the second, uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about is uh, just a follow-up, kind of a, a, kind of a note about the mobile me to iCloud transition. Was that your main topic? It was not. Okay, so here's the big news. Apple, and I'll, I'll add this link to the show notes right now. Uh, Apple came out with a little announcement. I believe it, it just came out today. Uh, at least I hadn't seen it before today, and I've, I've been looking for this kind of thing. But it's a frequently asked questions about the Mobile Me transition and iCloud, and they've got a, a neat little checklist showing you which of the Mobile Me services will be available in iCloud. And they list mail, check contacts, check calendar, check bookmarks, check find my iPhone, check back to my Mac, check web publishing, and they just have a little grade minus gallery minus and iDisk minus. But then. They have another little paragraph. That's, the, that's their graphic. Then below they have a paragraph. In addition, the following new services will be available in iCloud. iTunes in the cloud, photo Stream, Documents in the cloud, Automatic Downloads and Purchase History for Apps and Books, Backup and Restore. And then they have a, 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 They get to the fact part of this, where they say, oh, can I keep my mobile me address? They say yes. Uh, will I be able to access iCloud services on the web? yes. What happens to the iWeb sites that I've published? And they say you can continue through June 30th. Uh, and and it basically, you know, even after you move to iCloud, you can do some things. They have a whole article on it. What happens to pictures? You can keep using it to June 30th, blah, blah, blah. But here's the interesting part. This is a really interesting part. Basically, they're keeping most of the services around up until or in some cases even after you switch just so that you can get to your stuff. But here's the interesting part. And this is the one that's getting all the attention on Twitter. This is the one that everybody's uh, up in arms about. What happens to the other sync services I use for my Mac? And here's the answer. Syncing of Mac dashboard widgets, keychains, dock items and system preferences will not be part of iCloud, but will continue to be available for your use until you move to iCloud. After you move to iCloud or after June 30th, 2012, whichever comes first, those sync services will no longer be available.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's shocking.
0: No key but pe- because keychains, it, that's have, what people are very upset about.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they're upset about it but you could have seen it coming because it, those things use sync services, which is an API built on top of the mobile me syncing thing and they're trashing mobile me syncing thing because it's because it's bad basically. That's, you know, even though it works fine I sync my keychains and, and all that stuff too. Even though it seems to work fine that whole that model of syncing things where sync services does its little thing and if you have conflicts, you get presented with that dialogue and you pick between it, that's all out. Uh, they're not preserving that. They don't want that syncing experience. They don't want anyone to ever see that sync dialogue box that asks you to resolve conflicts. It's just that whole me- the mechanism and the model of that syncing is out the window. So the only way they could possibly preserve these features is if they had rewritten every single one of the applications that uses them in Lion to use some new equivalent. Now, they didn't even announce, really, a new equivalent to those things in their iCloud announcement. And uh, I think I can tell you that, uh, without shocking anybody, that all those applications are not massively rewritten for iCloud in in Lion.
0: So... And and they they do very clearly say web access to iCloud mail, contacts, calendar, and find my iPhone will be available at iCloud.com this fall. Right.
1: Yeah. So... The the web services, uh, there, there will be equivalents to those because that's doable, but they can't give you equivalents to all that kind of sync service stuff until they come up with a new set of APIs that runs on new servers and then rewrite those applications to use the new APIs on the new servers. And they, haven't, they simply haven't done that yet. So it doesn't mean there will never be equivalents to these features. It doesn't mean they've completely given up on syncing. They could have an equivalent feature that instead of syncing individual applications, there'll be some other mechanism like an entire mobile home directory or whatever. But this is part of the, you know, Apple's going through transitions now. with The Final Cut Pro 10 thing is a transition period. We're leaving behind that's the That's your old big thing topic and today. A, and starting a new thing. Right? And, and well, this is, this is a very similar scenario. When you start the new thing, there's a period of time where the new thing kind of sucks. And it takes a while to transition to it. And that's happening with iCloud. We don't know if iCloud is going to be better, but we do know that it's a, a pretty clean break from the old thing and there's going to be a painful period in the middle where stuff doesn't work. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a shame, but... I wasn't shocked by it. And I, I was happy to see that they did apparently, or do apparently have the web apps ready, or at least they think they're going to have them ready in time for the launch, iCloud.com. And I suspect those web apps will look and feel a lot like the me.com web apps do. I don't know how much of that effort they will reuse, presumably some of it, but it's nice that they'll have them out there uh, on launch. The fact that they don't have the sync services stuff, I don't know. I mean, I'm already about with your Jimbo too, because your Jimbo uses sync services and I use it with that. And there's a hard deadline. You know, when when June 30th or whatever comes along, you're almost not going to work anymore with sync services. Those services will be gone, I'm assuming. So if bare bones has to scramble to update it, or I just have to turn off syncing and start using Dropbox like you do or something like that,
0: we're in in for a rough time. Are we going to talk about the Dropbox security thing? Uh, That's not your main topic. What is your main topic? So
1: my main topic, I, I thought today
0: since this is what I've
1: been thinking about lately and doing is I would talk about how I write and talk about writing I like that because yeah, it's been what I've been embroiled in lately and uh, it's vaguely tech related because I write about technology but since when do we follow the rules of the podcast so closely we already to talk about some tech topics
0: it doesn't, right. it doesn't matter look pe- people are going to either listen and love the show or they're going to not love it and not listen and, and- we can't worry about that we just got to do our best that's right so so should, should we do our, a- should we do our second sponsor and then you can just have the rest of this just to rant sure all right right. Second sponsor this is a great one simple casts this is the easiest way to enjoy your favorite podcasts on your iphone it it features a very straightforward easy to use interface it doesn't require a, a phd in computer science or physics to operate this thing. Uh, they have great modes, continuous playback mode. It basically turns your iPhone into a personalized radio station. It'll play all your favorite shows without you having to even touch the device. You don't have to go and, like, make playlists. It just knows. It figures it all out. And you can do this all with AirPlay, too, which is great. And it has intelligent defaults. It makes uh, file management a breeze. You don't have to worry about downloads or files or space. It just it handles all of this stuff. And it has inline show notes, uh, it has saved Instapaper support, uh, themable interfaces. I mean, it, it's, it's awesome. And uh, they even added a new feature. Now, that I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this. But there's a, a Dan Benjamin feature that's available. I'm not making this up. It's available in the preferences that allows you to uh, prevent the use of uh, two times speed should you ac- accidentally want to do that. And I don't know if he's going to have this defaulted to on, but uh, shame on you if you listen to this thing at, at double speed and this app is actually aware of that and will di- can disable that should you, lest you want make the mistake of trying to do that. This is real. So that's our second sponsor, Simplecasts, and you can get that in the uh, iTunes app store. Just go there and search for Simplecasts or follow the link off of 5x5.tv off uh, this episode
1: still listening to my podcast on an old iPod shuffle in the dark ages.
0: Uh, it, but it doesn't have double speed, does it?
1: I don't think I can handle a lot of shows I listen to on double speed. No, who
0: can? Who would want to? Why would you want to do if that? Somebody,
1: if you're listening to a show with somebody who talks really slowly, then double speed can work because it just makes them sound like a New Yorker. But uh, <laughs> if you're listening to someone who already speaks quickly and mumbles the words like I do, you're going to miss... Half of what I say. If you try to double speed it,
0: but but see, here's maybe that's the feature. The artist's intent, and in this case, we're the artists, right? The intent is to listen to it at the speed that we're speaking. It's it, you wouldn't you wouldn't go and see a, a great movie and just put it on fast forward and, and try to read the subtitles. I mean, that you wouldn't get anything out of it. It's like reading the well, cliff notes well, instead of a great novel. Why would you do that? You're not really reading why a novel. You send
1: them. Why don't you send a, a typewritten letter to everybody? Suggesting a an allowable listening speed range, sort of like you can go from 1.0 to 1.77, <laughs> something like that.
0: I'm as long as my then, typewriter can type can in say, well, Futura. The creator
1: said. The creator said it's okay to have a range. So if I have to show it at this at this listen to it at this speed, <laughs> it's okay.
0: If I if my typewriter could type in Futura, I would do it.
1: Yeah, you got a magic typewriter now.
0: It's called the computer. Well, I'll look into it. All right, big topic writing. Your writing process. You are a writer. People don't know this. You have a degree in uh, yeah, so, social psychology. Is that your degree? So,
1: no. So this there was a presentation at South by Southwest 2011 uh, featuring Jim Kudall, Michael Lopp, and our friend John Gruber of the talk show. And their presentation was called 12 Slides, Three Writers, although I think they changed the 12 to a 15 or something. And it was the same set of slides. Each slide had a just a simple word or phrase on it. And then each of the three presenters went through the same slide deck and used that as a jumping off point to talk about how they write. And so I'm going to do exactly the same thing, 100% rip off their thing. And I actually got permission from John Gruber about this. He gave permission on behalf of the others. This is a case where I did see the presentation that I'm about to rip off. <laughs> Uh,
0: and unlike John's, uh, was it Webstock?
1: Yes, the Webstock thing, which I saw after doing a podcast <laughs> that covered much of the same ground. This I've right. seen before. Uh, so this is all completely approved. But it is, it is an interesting way to talk about writing. Uh, and then you can compare and contrast what all four of us say, if you'd like to go back through the deck. Uh, unfortunately, this is not an audiovisual medium, so you don't see the slides. But each slide was just completely black with white text with a word or a phrase on it. And I will read the word or the phrase. Uh, that comes in front of it. And i preface this by saying, I am not, despite your little intro there, a trained writer. M- my degree is in engineering. Did you guess that, listeners? Uh, and computer engineering specifically, which is basically just electrical engineering with some CS courses. Uh, but there is not a lot of literature or writing in that uh, curriculum.
0: And you have so a can- minor in social psychology.
1: I have no minor. It's just computer engineering, 100%. Uh, and I'm also going to just explain how, how I work. Now, maybe you can extract some tips tips and tricks, Merlin Mann style, from this that will, you'll be able to apply to your own life, your own writing, but maybe not. I'm not holding this up as this is the way you should write. I'm just going to say this is how I work. And that was pretty much the premise of the presentation as well. Each person described how they worked, uh, not prescribing to everybody this is how you should write and this is how writing is done. So that first slide, that little section there, the first slide said forward, and we just did that. That was my forward talking about the source here and uh, where I'm coming from. The next slide is giving yourself an assignment. So this is sort of the Stephen King, where do you get your ideas kind of question. Because that's, especially for me, who's doing this as a a freelancer, this is the question. How do you decide what you're going to write about? Because you don't have to write about anything. It's not your job to do anything. I'm not a, a reporter or anything. So... For me, what I usually want to have is some sort of angle that, that's fresh that I haven't read somewhere else already because I don't have I don't have a thing that I have to do. I'm not compelled to cover any particular news story or talk about any particular thing simply because it's not my job. So I, I only want to talk about something if I think I have something to add. If I'm adding a new voice and I'm not just like an echo of everything else that's out there. This was a lot... Different years and years ago, when there were very few people writing about the same things that I'm interested in, now there are tons of people doing it, and they 're doing it for a living, and they 're doing a better job than I do, so that 's part of why i don 't write as much. In fact, there was a reddit thread asking questions about RStagnica. I should put that in the show notes where somebody asked why i didn 't write as much anymore, and I had a, a, a big uh, answer that I put in there that i 'll link to so So it basically depends on me not having read the issues that are the the angle that I'm about to write about. And that doesn't mean that my angle is original. It just means that I haven't read about it. And this all depends on who I'm reading. So it's much safer for me to stick to topics that I actually read a lot about, because if 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 it's like a Mac topic, chances are good that I've read every Mac site of note in my news feeds or whatever. And I'm on top of what people are saying. But if I decide to write about some completely unrelated topic, there is a much greater danger that I'm going to say something that I think is original, but that's ridiculous and trite and it's been said a thousand times before and I'm going to, you know, not going to say anything new and I'm going to say something that's incorrect. Much, much greater chance of that. And you see the exact same thing happening on this podcast. In fact, every time we talk about topics that I'm not an expert in, I end up saying something stupid or incorrect. Uh, doesn't stop me from doing it, but you know, that's what happens. Of course, the difference on the podcast is I'm much more willing to just BS about stuff that I don't know about. As long as I preface it with saying that I'm just talking out of my butt, I don't mind it too much. But when you write stuff down, it seems more permanent to me and I want to get it right. So I will try not to write about topics that I don't know too much about. Uh, I don't know why that is. I guess recorded audio is just as permanent as uh, written word. It, It seems like it's harder to search for. You know, like you can Google for something I said years ago and you'll find a hit because it's on a website or in archive.org. But if you try to Google for something I said in a podcast, you're not going to find it. But maybe this is a foolish choice and my grandkids will have complete access to uh, technology <laughs> that, that transcribes audio feeds from the past and they will have full text search of everything ever said on any podcast. And then then I'm really screwed. Uh, it's a risk I'm only to take, I guess. Next slide. Without a net. How? Oh. Since I'm doing this as a freelancer, I'm writing by myself. I'm not like in a newsroom, virtual or otherwise. I don't have colleagues who I can bounce story ideas off of who are also writing day in, day out. It's usually me, after the kids go to bed, thinking of something and writing before I go to bed. It's not. And at that point, everyone else is off doing their own things for the night. Even people online are hard to get in touch with. Now, I have I have editors in some cases, if I'm not just writing for my personal blog or something, it's, it's editors at ours in Macworld. But the editors, their job is to uphold standards and you know, be editorial, but it's not their job to know every detail of whatever it is that I'm writing about. So if I write something that's wrong, they don't know every detail of every topic in the world. They're not going to catch that. It's on, it's on me not to screw up. And again, it gets back to trying to only write about topics that I know something about so I don't screw up too badly. Next slide is starting. Now, for me, the first few sentences are always the hardest part. Like I'll sit there and I'll do that cliche thing where you sit there staring at the the screen with the blinking cursor, and there's nothing on the page, and you just I'll just sit there for what seems like a ridiculous amount of time. And what I'm doing during that time is I'm writing sentences in my head and discarding them, writing them and discarding them, and right? just cannot find a way in. And this is, no matter what I'm going to write about, it's just always hard to get that first thing off. It's particularly bad for really big review uh, things like the Mac OS X review. Because where do you even begin? Where do you even begin on a, a topic that big? You know you're, you know what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about X, Y, and Z, and it's just this big giant thing. But how do, you, how do you find your way in there? How do you even start? And I don't like to start not at the beginning. I don't like to start with section two or section three. I got to start at the beginning because I, have to know where, I just have to know where I'm going. So it takes a long, long time. To, I remember when I started my Mac OS 10 review, which was months ago, I think I spent like three hours doing like six paragraphs. It was like two paragraphs an hour for the for the first six paragraphs cuz it was just killing me. I just could not find my way in. Now, sometimes I have a first sentence in mind. Like I'll I have an idea in my head and i am like, yeah, that's that's the intro sentence. I've got that that's my inspiration for the thing. I know what the first sentence is going to be, okay? And then I go and sit down to write it and it turns out that the sentence that was in my head is something I might say but not something you can actually write. Like, it's incorrect grammar, there are things left out of it, it's just not, it's not, a, it's not a whole wholly formed phrase. In your head, can, you know, your emotion can fill in the blanks, or you have an idea of what you want to get at, but when it comes time to write it, you realize it's just not there. And that happens very, very often. So even when I think I have a first sentence, I really don't. Or even if it's actually a sentence that can go out on the page, I will write it and then reject it once I see it written. Uh, and this is, this is a specific case of general malady of not speaking like you write. I definitely don't speak like I write. I speak very poorly, and I try to write better than that. Because when you're writing, you have a chance to look at how it is, go back and fix it, and try it again, and try it again. Speaking, it just comes out the way it comes out. Uh, the people who do speak in a way that if you were to put down verbatim what they said onto a piece of paper, that it would be good writing, they are much better writers than I am. <laughs> it's probably one of the secrets to being a good writer. Is that you, if you ever go to like hear a, reader or a great writer speak, they're they're pretty good speakers, too. They speak in complete Formed sentences that make sense Not a lot of ums And stutters and babbles and stuff like that That you can get away with on a, on a podcast That you can't get away with in print That's why that's one of my attractions to print is that That's the place where I can perfect what I want to say I can Write, write it down and then look at it again And revise and revise and revise until, it, until it's polished the way I want it to look Whereas once I say something It's just out there and it's too late for me to pull it back in And the more I try to correct it Speaking on a podcast or whatever The worse it gets So writing is much nicer in that regard. Next slide is, do you feel a draft, which is a bad pun for trying to get us to talk about drafts, I guess. Uh, My philosophy on writing drafts is that I try to get it right on the first try. I don't do that thing where you just plow ahead and just just get through it. just Whatever you're writing, But that's what writers will tell you to do, and that probably is the right thing to do, to not... Obsess over it and just just get something written and then go back and revise. I have trouble doing that, and this is a very bad choice because it makes me write very 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 slowly. Again, the, the six paragraphs and you know three hours for the introduction of the Mac OS X article. It's because I just I just couldn't move on until I had gotten something out in in the previous paragraph or gotten it right.
0: So is that like getting actually, stuck then? In in that way, you're you're getting stuck.
1: Not stuck. It's just that. Like I've said what I want to say, but I've said it poorly. So I said, how else can I say that? How else can I rephrase that? And at a certain point, you find out you're trying to rephrase one sentence. You're never going to find the right way to say it because the previous sentence that leads into it is crappy. So then you go back two sentences. Then you realize actually this whole paragraph is coming in at the wrong angle, and that's why these sentences are awkwardly formed. And you know I, what I should just be doing is just plowing ahead. But it's not how I work. I I want it to be right. I want it, I want to get through the, the thing that I'm writing from start to finish, believing that. I wrote it as be- as well as I possibly can. Now, this is never, ever, ever, ever actually true, but I want to believe that it is. I don't want to leave a sentence behind that I know is not written as well as I can write it, or at least not. Uh, I don't. I think it's not written as well as I can write it. Uh, so, you know, there's an old saying in programming that uh, don't don't make your cl- code as clever as possible because debugging is harder than programming. So you are by definition creating code that you're not smart enough to debug. Have you heard that one? Yes
0: it's yes. a problem so. for many, many of us.
1: I think that that rule is BS, by the way. And if we do a, a programming show, I'll talk about why it's <laughs> well, BS. Well, it is should do but it is. But it is a common saying. Uh, well, the thing that it reminds me of in writing is that most great writers are better editors than they are writers. It's not really the equivalent of the previous saying, but it reminded me of it. So uh, anyway, I do a lot of editing. I think that's also true of me, not that I'm a great writer, but I am much better at editing than I am at writing. Writing is just hard and painful But when I go back and look at what I've written, I can tell when it's wrong. Uh, And usually I know why it's wrong. The hard part comes in going, so I can tell this is bad. I know why it's bad. The hard part comes, okay, how do you fix it? And that's the hard part. That's what makes you a great writer and makes me not a great writer. Is that I I can't, you know, I know it's wrong and it kills me, but I can't quite figure out how to fix it. And that that goes into the whole, well, then just scrap this whole sentence and scrap the sentence before. Let me try writing it again. Just iterate and iterate. But editing is hugely important. It's also what takes a real long time because if you've written 10, 20, 30,000 words, editing that amount, it just takes a long time. And it goes faster. Editing, I find, goes much faster than writing because I don't get stuck with editing. With editing, I find the bad parts. I fix them. Read, find, bad fix. I'm always doing something. I'm not stuck. Uh, But editing definitely is, uh, in my opinion, much more important than writing. And when I'm editing and when I'm writing, too, I, I pick my words very carefully. And I, I, I've so often thought that my obsession with getting the right word is of dubious value because it seems to me that most readers don't like extract the full meaning of my word choice. It's mostly because they, they don't know all the words that I rejected and why I rejected them. So they'll just say, yeah, but there's, there's 20 words that I could have used that are synonym for the word he picked there. Or, oh, I get the gist of what he's saying. Like they read, what they hear what they want to hear not what's actually written. Because again, they don't know why I didn't use those other words and uh, what, what those other words were that I rejected. Uh, and I'm particularly concerned with accuracy. So I'll give you an example from something I was doing recently. Okay. So say I'm talking about uh, SQLite, which is a standalone uh, single-file database thing, open-source thing that's been around for years. I'm talking about SQLite and Mac OS X, And we know that iPhoto uses SQLite. As if you go into your iPhoto library, you can see this little SQLite database. You can connect to it with your SQLite client. and
0: That's where all, all your mail uh, is stored locally.
1: Is Mail in SQLite too? Yeah. So they're doing, they're doing individual messages and they also have a SQLite database?
0: It, it's all there. You know how you ever seen that little tip where you can vacuum the uh, SQLite database to improve mail performance, that kind of thing? I'm not I, sure I what sure. they're searching. It might just be the indexes that they're yeah. saving in
1: there. I, I don't use Apple Mail, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that it's not used or something. Apple has been using SQLite for a lot, okay? Yeah. And I also know that SQLite is one of the backends for Core Data. Core Data has a couple of different backends that you can choose. And SQLite is like the good one, like the, the one you want for your big data fast, you know, instead of the other backends are like a binary P list and an XML human readable P list for debugging and stuff like that. So, <laughs> someone in the in the chat room is trying to tell me that I'm saying SQLite wrong. I believe I am saying it correctly. Uh, but some there is some debate about that. Because, well, there there
0: are rules. There are rules of how to pronounce these different things. Yeah, so things, if you like, go
1: to the website, it will tell you one way, and I think the creator of the, the original author had, might have said it a different way. This is one of those things where... Like, for example, there's, of,
0: there's ones that are clear, like MySQL. It's not MySQL. It's MySQL. That's very well-known and established. It's also PostgreSQL, my yeah, understanding. That, and, uh, however, SQLite, I think you're okay with that. I think you're okay with that.
1: No, I think if you go to the website, it will say to say SQLite. I'm not doing that. Like, like, yeah, but that sounds awkward. It's kind of like GIF-GIF. I don't really care what the creator of the GIF format says. I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. So in <laughs> this case, I am intentionally bucking the trend of how they want you to say this thing. I want to say SQLite, and that's what I'm going to say. I do not say MySQL. Uh, but that's what these people get for, for picking names that have multiple pronunciations. because You remember the when they of-
0: used to call HTML hot metal? There were people who were pronouncing it like that. Do you remember that? A-
1: there was a GUI Max. Uh, yeah, but Mac people people play.
0: took it from that and would speak of it as hot metal. Like to I them, never
1: heard a real person say oh, yeah.
0: that. You weren't. I guess you weren't working on the web back then.
1: I was, but like not with people who said that.
0: Well, you were in a metropolitan. There, were, there
1: right? was there was the application hot metal for for, class, for Mac OS eight or nine or whatever. But I had never heard it called hot metal.
0: Well, they, these are probably the same people who, for them, the internet is Google, and they they type in you know, apple.com into the Google search box to go to apple.com.
1: Yeah, and with these open source things especially, they spread, they, they gain popularity uh, without input from the creator usually, just like organically. So if everyone just starts saying MySQL, the creator of MySQL has a little control over that and then he just kind of try to pull it back by putting up a thing on his website that says how to pronounce it. So anyway, I'm saying SQLite, you to have to deal with it. But let me get back to my point here, which was that, so it's a backend for core data, and it's also used by iPhoto. Now I can confirm this by going to my iPhoto library, seeing a SQLite database file, connecting it to the SQLite 3 command line thing, and running some queries. Yep, that's a SQLite database. Like, it sure looks like one. And I know Core Data uses SQLite because I've seen a million WWDC sessions where they tell you that this is one of the backends and it's the highest performance backend and so on and so forth. But I would be very, very careful not to write something that implies that iPhoto uses uses or doesn't use Core Data because I don't know that. I don't, someone in the chat room can tell me whether it is not but the point is when i'm writing that sentence i will not write it in such a way that it even implies that core data uses sqlite iphoto uses sqlite and therefore iphoto uses core data because that's not something i know so i'll be very careful to limit the sentences you can consider this like lawyer wording or weasel wording but i will i will make sure that i'm not saying something that i do not know to be true and conversely if i'm wording in something in such a way that it it says that something is true it's because i've Confirmed it, you know, either because Apple told me or because I've gone in and confirmed it myself. So, I'm I'm very careful about word choice in these type of reviews. Sometimes frustratingly so for people because they will come in and say, "You said X, Y, and Z, and that means that you think blah." And I'll say, "Well, read the sentence. Did I say that?" And they'll say, "Well, no, but you know, like they read the sentence that's in their head, not the sentences on the page. If I, you know, read the words that I wrote, do the words." say or imply this at all. Can you logically conclude from what I've written this thing that you're claiming that I said? You can't most of the time, but they will get the impression that they can't. So I, I, I have, in my mind, I have the ordinary reader with that voice that I just imitated when I'm writing every single sentence saying, when that dude writes in, and it's usually a dude, and complains about this, I want to be able to copy and paste the sentence verbatim from the website in quotes and say, read this sentence. And then it's up on, it's, you know, this, this sentence explains it and refutes your point because All the words are there to show you that what you said is not the case. And if you still can't get it by reading a sentence, then, you know, whatever. So I'm very, very careful about that, obsessed with it even. Next slide, foolish consistencies. Speaking of obsession, I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with grammar, uh, with correct grammar. And this is bad because I have very little education in the area of grammar. So I'm obsessed with being correct, but know almost nothing about it, again, it was not. Didn't you know? I just have an undergraduate degree, and it's in engineering, and they really do not spend much time on English grammar in engineering. Let me tell you, lots of math, even lots of physics. Not a lot of English grammar, uh, but I do want to get it right. I really, really want to get it right. So I'm kind of in a bind here. Uh, now I rely on the internet. You know, Google searches are great for you type in the word or phrase like uh, you can just type into Google should the word for be capitalized in a title. Just just write your question. Put a question mark at the end of it. Google will find you a bunch of hits. It's up to you to, to decide which of these hits is reputable and which is just random people on a forum, but you can usually find a good place for that. Uh, Stack Exchange, the english.stackexchange.com, I think is the URL. That's uh, that network from uh, Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. I think you did an interview with uh, Jeff Atwood. They have sites de- q&a type sites dedicated to various topics and they do have an english grammar one and that's a great source if you can find an answer from there I usually consider it pretty authoritative but you can also find Strunk and white online or you know all sorts of other sources but googling for your question is one possible source if it's an easy one like should i capitalize for on a title uh and i also have a few trusted friends who i can contact online to, to bounce things off them like should i use a comma here should i not use a comma there should i use a dash what word could i use for this is this grammatically correct is this a run on everything um now the grammar is a little bit funny because like like any sort of formal system you'll have your share of rules lawyers you know that phrase from your D past your larping <laughs> all that business R- larping yeah the rules lawyers and that that's my inclination as well uh, unfortunately i lack the actual education to be a proper rules lawyer for grammar but that's kind of where i'm coming from but Mostly what I try to remember when I'm dealing with grammar or just writing in general is is that the purpose of writing is to communicate, to pass ideas from one person to another. And the role grammar plays in that is that you're getting everybody to agree or trying to get everyone to agree on a set of rules so we can increase the chances that what we write will be interpreted the way we expect by the reader. The reader and the writer have to be on the same page about when I write in this way with this punctuation, this is what I'm trying to say. So we, we all agree on the grammar and punctuation rules so that we can successfully transfer information. right? Because if we didn't agree, and I wrote in perfect grammatical English, but someone from five centuries ago read it, they would have no idea what I was talking about, or it right. would be so incorrect that it would, wouldn't make any sense. Now, but but the corollary to this is that Grammar rules can impair communication if the reader isn't aware of the grammar rules. So once I get off into the weeds, like esoteric rule that, you know, I've gotten my friend with a master's degree in English to tell me that this is 100% grammatically correct and the way you should write this, but none of the readers are going to know that and they're not going to be able to parse it because now we're, now we're not sharing the same rule book here. They don't know this particular formulation or this particular structure or it's confusing to them or they might interpret it the wrong way. So I return to my mantra about this stuff. Writing is about communication. If I have to break a grammar rule to increase the chances that I can communicate an idea to the reader, then I'll do that and This usually involves like writing more informally, more like how I speak, because that that will be successful at communicating, even if it's incorrect grammar. If I feel like I'm on the same playing field as my reader i can like if I was met you in person, I could communicate this idea to you. but when I write it, I feel like you would not get it if I wrote it in this way, so let me become less formal and uh, stick the rules less just so I can get my idea to you. Because that is the important part. And this is, if I have one tip that I can give for anyone who wants to write out of all these things that I I will hold up as a good guideline, is that do not forget writing is about communication. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to think of it like you're painting a picture or doing a sculpture or or creating a, a film or doing some sort of art. It is writing is way for you to communicate ideas to someone else and anything that gets in the way of communication, good grammar, bad grammar, good style, bad style, anything communication overall, unless you're writing poetry, I guess, or something that is more sort of pure art. But if you're writing nonfiction and trying to explain things, communicate the important thing. Next slide is the hook. I, I absolutely have to have a hook. I have to have, I have to have a hook for me and I have to have a hook for the reader. Whether that hook survives into the written word doesn't matter I need, because I need some motivation to write. And since I choose when to write, I want to have some hook that, that draws me in that makes me want to write about this particular topic. Uh, now, this is related, so I'm going to quickly move to the next slide, which is the lead, spelled L-E-D-E, which I believe, do you know why they spelled that the wrong way? I think it's because if spelled the right way, it could be mistaken for an actual headline. <laughs> and they didn't, was that, is that the rule? I don't know. Yeah, L E D E. What they mean by the lead is is the the, the headline, the title, and they spell it L E D E instead of L E A D or any other thing, so that if a placeholder piece of placeholder text is there when it goes to print, they will know that this could not possibly be the real title because it's misspelled. I don't know if that's true. I could have this completely backwards. Uh, someone's telling me it's a typesetting term. Anyway. I'm taking this slide, since I don't know the complete origins of this phrase, I'm taking this slide to mean the title. Uh, and speaking of hooks, which was the last one, the title is very, very often the hook for me. I, I keep my iPod Touch on the bedside table, so as I'm drifting off to sleep, if I have an idea, I can just reach over and tap out whatever my idea is. Uh, and I find I have to actually do that because—
0: And when you, I, say, when you say idea, are you talking about for within the context of an article that you're already writing or something brand new? Something anything. That-
1: anything idea for something i'm writing which has been more common when i'm embroiled in this line review idea for something new anything it's mostly related to writing but any one of those things it could be it and and i find i have to tap them out on my ipad i can't just go or ipod i can't just go to sleep and go yeah i'll do that in the morning because if i don't write them down i forget them this is what happens when you get old kids enjoy your memories now while you have them i was so used to if i had some vague thought be like yeah i'll remember that three days from now and then three days from now i won't even remember that i had that thought i have to write it down and very often those ideas are titles just titles like if you look at my little notes thing notes app on on the, the ipod touch it's just full of things that look like article titles with nothing else underneath them and that's usually all i need because i just need i just needed it to to remind me to access the portion of my brain where that idea is stored if I lose the key, sort of. If I lose the, if I lose the address of where that idea is stored, I'll never remember it. But once I have that thing, oh yeah, oh yeah, and all the ideas I had come flooding back. Occasionally, I'll need one or two words in addition to that, uh, and I almost always find my own titles that I come up with much more clever and insightful than any reader ever will. <laughs> Friend, it's probably because like I associate my titles with my thoughts on the topic, and they're all kind of baked into that one line. My job is to take all those ideas that I associated with that one line and put them on the paper. And to the degree to which I fail to communicate those thoughts to the reader determines exactly how clever they think the title is. So if I have a clever title and I think this is great content buried in it and I write a crappy article underneath it, people think that title is stupid because I didn't successfully extract all the meaning that I had associated with that title. Which is frustrating for me, but you know, that's the title is kind of the hook for me. It got me excited about writing this thing. The next slide is unstuck. So for shorter pieces, I only really get stuck in the beginning. Like I said, I have a trouble starting, but then once I get going, it's done before I have a chance to get stuck again. Uh, but for longer things like the line review, it's more like a series of short pieces. So every time I get to the beginning of a section, I'm stuck again. Because now i got to find a new beginning. It's a sub-beginning. I don't have to begin, begin again, but I have to begin and well, start talking about whatever this topic is. And it's like starting all over again. And then on top of that, there are sort of the meta issues of organizing in and linking between sections and trying to form some sort of cohesive hole out of this massive, shambling monster that is a Mac OS X review. It's really, really hard for me to take all those things that I want to talk about and try to present it as a cohesive whole. I usually do a bad job with that. Maybe the closest I've come is the Snow Leopard review. Like, if you were to ask a reader, well, first slog through this giant review. This was the last uh, Mac OS X review I did, by the way. And then tell me what you think the overarching theme is. And they probably won't be able to tell you, like, the theme is this guy needs to write less or something like that. Uh, but if you ask me what the heart of the article was, it was, I actually wrote it down. It was one of the sections. It was doing more with more, which is the idea of Apple giving developers and itself the tools to take better advantage of having more CPU resources instead of having a faster CPU, having more CPU cores instead. So doing more with more, taking that more hardware that's available to you and figuring out a way to use it. That was sort of the technical theme of Snow Leopard as far as I was concerned and I named a section doing more with more and I preceded it by a whole bunch of different sections of the specific technologies that was enabling you to do more with more and that was my theme but how well I weave that through the rest of the thing like when you're reading about me complaining about the Finder are you thinking that the theme of Snow Leopard is doing more with more I guess it's I guess operating systems aren't movies and there's not going to be an overarching theme and so I'm sort of artificially applying one but I do I do want there to be one otherwise I I want my reviews to, to have a little bit of the feeling of a narrative instead of just, here's this feature, they added this checkbox, here's this screenshot, they added some more checkboxes, here's it. you know what I mean? that's A lot of the Mac OS X reviews or long technical reviews I see online are just like that. It's like someone went through every single screen, took a screenshot of it, and then wrote words to explain what you see in the screenshot, noting which things are new or not. And that's not what I want to do. Sometimes that's what people want, but that's not, that's not what I'm providing most of the time. I have, usually have a section or two that are like that, like my grab bag section at the end where I just show a bunch of screenshots and interesting things, but I I want to talk about something. So the next section is proofing. I am a terrible proofer of my own writing. I think most people are.
0: Uh, So do you have to hand it off? you have to get someone else to do it?
1: You you have to. I don't know. Can you proof your own writing? Oh, yeah. You can can find all the errors. You can find find the errors to hand it off. I cannot do that, and most people I've met can't do that as well because... What you read is what you meant to write, not what's actually written there. Hmm. Now now there's a there's a corollary to this. The one thing that will magnify my proofreading abilities by an order of magnitude or just make me into a super proofreader is hitting the publish button and making hmm. whatever I wrote go live on the internet. Because then the whole as, the
0: whole world sees it starts email. As
1: soon as my brain knows that other people are reading what I've written, it panics and finally starts reading what the actual words on the page. In fact, if I was smart, I would convince the sites that i publish for to rig the cms so that only i can see it it's kind of like the reverse hell ban where only <laughs> i can see what i've published but i think everyone else can see it because when i that's what i'll do i'll hit the publish button and then you go to the site to see that it's displaying correctly on the site or whatever and then then i read it and then i find the typos which is the worst time to find them because now it's open for it. but that's the only thing that can motivate my brain to actually find typos in my own writing which is sad but true uh so this is the good thing about internet publishing, though. Oh, uh, yeah! Someone in the chat room suggested changing the typeface. I should bring that up. I actually, I don't have that in my notes here. But so when I write, I don't write in Markdown. I'm not a Markdown fan. I can do a show about why I don't like Markdown.
0: Oh, we um, gotta do. Like, we gotta do that.
1: If you like Markdown, that's great for you, but I don't. Uh, but I, I write in HTML. I mean, it's just natural for me to write in HTML. I already know HTML. It's going to be in HTML. I just write in that. Uh, and then people might say, "Well, how can you even read?" something with tags all over. That's the point of markdown. Get that markup crap out of your text so you can actually read it. Well, I do not proofread most of the time by looking at the HTML. I have an HTML preview window in Edit, which updates in real time. And I proofread on the HTML, but write in the text. And the idea of changing the font, of like changing, you know, writing in one font, and then changing another to help you proofread. This is the equivalent of changing the font and that I'm looking at it. Basically, I am changing the font. I'm looking at it in Monaco 9 or whatever in Edit, And then the HTML preview... I have templates that look like uh, the Ars Technica and, and whatever site I'm going to be writing for. The preview is in a different font, whatever font the, the website is in. Different size, different layout, different line breaks, everything. I think a lot of changing the font is that it, it could also change the line breaks and make you proofread things better. Uh, but yeah, that does really help, but I'm still terrible at it. So yeah, with the sites I write for have proofreaders. Obviously, Macworld has the hardcore print proofreaders who just don't miss anything. I've never seen them miss anything. Uh, because you get one shot at print but for the online stuff they have proofreaders too but the great thing about online is that the minute it goes up people will start sending you the typos and you can fix them you can go right in and immediately fix them and you're not even
0: talking about inaccuracies which of course you wouldn't you would never have an inaccuracy
1: i got inaccuracies occasionally it's mostly because uh what i try to have for my inaccuracies is i want me to be to either say something in a way that expresses that i don't know maybe it's this way maybe it's that way and someone will write it and say actually it's that way and then i can go put in an update and says well here's an update actually it's this way or i will omit information because if i don't know it, i won't say it but i don't want it to happen is for me to conclusively say this is that way you know x is y and then someone will say no you're totally wrong i if i don't know for sure i just won't write it and then then someone might complain and says hey you didn't even mention this didn't you know that x is y and i'll say no i actually didn't know that that's why I didn't write about it. You know, I will stick to what I know. So I welcome corrections, and I try to avoid having factual corrections where I'm just 100% wrong. And obviously, if you write enough words, it's going to happen eventually. But typos is a big one. And the new thing for me, since I use speech recognition a lot, is, I don't know what you call speechos. There's got to be a word for errors that happen from bad transcription from speech recognition software. All right. like it'll do an A or an N. it's always, It has a spell check, preferably, because the speech recognition is not going to type a word that doesn't exist in its dictionary. So... You won't catch it with spell check, unlike typos, normal typos, where you transpose characters or whatever. It'll sail right through, but it's nonsensical. You'll get the wrong word. Some word that sounds vaguely like the word you meant, but not the correct word. And that's the stuff that, you know, when I read the sentence, I'll just read what I meant to write, and then the readers will say, this makes most sense. I think you meant and there instead of and, or the instead of there. All right. next slide is leftovers. So, as I'm writing, and I I'm shaving stuff off because i don't want to move on until i've got a good sentence sometimes i'll have a sentence that i think was good but this is not the right place for it and i'll just chuck it to the bottom of the document inside a big html comment block and by by the time i'm done i've got leftover sentences leftover paragraphs all sorts of leftover things just jumbled up at the end there uh now sometimes like deleted scenes on a dvd was a good reason there's a good reason they were left out like there were i may have been wedded to them and i thought they were great but really when you look back at them it's like yeah that those that should have been cut but sometimes you have an idea it's just not the right time for so you can just shove them away in the notes and maybe that will come up again and inspire you later very very rarely do i delete anything from the leftovers bin because i never know when it's going to even if the issue that's talking about has long since passed, i will keep the the note there because it may be applicable to some future scenario and remind me of something else knowing when you're done uh, I think I've said this on a previous podcast. It's another old saying about works of art. You don't finish them, they escape. Uh, this is mostly true for longer reviews. For me, for shorter ones, uh, well, it's longer reviews and for things that go to print because they just escape. You're like, wait, no, come back. I could I could make you better. No, oh, it has to go out. For shorter pieces, though, I usually want to get them online as fast as I can because I'm writing about something that's timely. Like it, This is the day that everyone's talking about issue X. So that if I don't publish my story about issue X today, tomorrow the news cycle will move on and will not be as relevant. Uh, this is another exciting part of internet publishing. You feel like you're contributing to a worldwide conversation about a hot topic in real time. It's very different from writing longer pieces for print magazines or even longer things on ours like the features that they'll hold back for you know for traffic reasons or because they're not related to a particular news story. Mac OS Ten reviews arguably are related to a particular news story because this is the day that line is released. But there's a window around that but other issues like if I was writing about I did a thing on ebooks for ours and ebooks were not in the news at that point and it was not a hot topic so they you know they could hold that for two days a week or whatever and just fit into their schedule whenever they want to publish it but shorter ones I want to get out so I will not linger over a short one I get antsy about you know I want to see it published I wrote it now get it up so it's timely and I think this is the final thing here footnote I try not to use footnotes because I don't, like, I don't like it when I lose my place when I'm reading things. Even in physical books where you can see the footnote on the same page, you just have to move your eyes down. I don't even like moving my eyes down to read the footnote and move it back up. Now, when I do use footnotes, I use these in-page links with the little Unicode symbols that Gruber came up with years ago for go down to the footnote and then return right. to your previous position right. But the, the browser's ability to return you to wherever that, that anchor is earlier in the page it's always sketchy like sometimes it won't leave margins so it'll jam the line of text that the anchor is in up against the top of the screen and that's ugly and and either way you're not going to remember your place exactly because if you remember where you were looking on the screen you'll have to be looking someplace else unless the anchor was exactly at the top of the screen when you were reading it yeah, you but know, when you're reading, you could come to a footnote that's halfway down the page and you click it and go to the footnote, but when you return, that footnote will not be halfway down the page, it will be at the top or if you go to a footnote that's lower down on the page, that maybe the page won't scroll at all and you you won't have to deal with that, but it's just it's just spotty i don't I don't like being displaced in that way, so I generally try to avoid using them or using them occasionally i I'm much a bigger fan of it. I'd rather just have it parenthetically in line or something like that uh now, that's not to say I don't have my own idiosyncrasies. And things that I enjoy, things that I enjoy much, much more than readers do, I'm sure. Uh, like, I like to link to audio and video clips from random words. Uh, not particularly clever links, but they they serve an important purpose. It's kind of kind of like the, the, uh, the title hooks. The fact that I get a kick out of them keeps me interested in the article and keeps me writing. You know? And it's also kind of like my reward at the end. Like, I'll, I'll annotate while I'm writing. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should link this to this audio clip or I should link that to that particular thing. Just... Because it amuses me. And then when I'm done writing, I have to go back and actually connect those links and do all that stuff. Uh, I'm sure one or two readers actually mouse over every single link I put into an article and click on them. Most people don't enjoy it. A few people click on it and get pissed because they think it's dumb, and it probably is. I'm sorry for that, but it's just something i do to keep myself amused. Maybe footnotes do the same way for some other people. We all have our our writing vices. Uh, And speaking of footnotes, one final note on linking things. I I love to link things. I, I think in links. So so when I write without HTML, like when I, I was writing for print for the first time, I started writing a link and I'm like, well, wait a second, I can't actually I can't actually make a link here. Uh and it was just it was it was very strange to me. I obviously I'd written not in HTML for years and years in school. Well, not too much writing, but in high school or whatever. But in my quote unquote professional writing career, I was always writing in HTML until I started writing for print a little bit. And it's just strange. I find myself having to go back and revise to make sure that the text, not the links, but the text itself, if stripped of all HTML, actually communicates all the subtleties that I was trying to express by linking to a particular, a particular word or a particular thing. With, I have to say, okay, well, if that link wasn't there, are all my ideas still in the sentence or was I leaning on that link to add meaning to the sentence? The old school view is like, this, this is foolish, that the text completely stripped of links shouldn't lose any meaning it should be it should stand on its own the links are fine they're bonus but the text alone should be enough and there's also the view that links are distracting and they break up the flow because people are reading and they see these blue underlined words and they can feel compelled to click on each one it's annoying it's like i just want to read the sentence do i have to click on this to understand the sentence It's, it's annoying i disagree with this view i i think writing online is different from writing in print and i think linking is part of it being a good online writer means knowing how to link well online writing has its own set of rules and the readers I'm speaking to when I write understand those rules because they're soaking in them all day long when they're reading the internet. Like you just, I think a lot of people are growing up writing, reading on the internet, and I think they would find it weird to read print where they can't click on a word to find out some more information about it. Or you know, and I think that helps the writing because especially when I'm doing technical writing, if I don't want to get, you always have to assume something of as the reader. Does the reader understand what a pointer is? Does the reader understand what a stack is? Does the reader understand what a virtual machine is? You said, well, if I don't want to explain this to the reader, am I losing audience? Probably. But I really don't want to explain it because I'll spend all my time explaining basic concepts and never get to what I want to say. So the easy thing is, well, just link to the Wikipedia page for Pointer. And if people really want to know what a Pointer is, they can go. They could also just copy and paste the word Pointer into Google or into Wikipedia and find it themselves, but they won't. So by providing the links, I'm I'm trying to be inclusive. I'm saying, you may not have the background to understand this thing I'm about to talk about here, but if you want to have the background, the words I think you're most likely not to understand are linked. That's just providing reference. The other second thing is providing meaning, where you link a word, usually sarcastically in my case, to something that makes a statement about the thing that you linked. You're trying to say the thing you linked is good or bad. You're linked to something that's embarrassing or uh, something that boosts the, the thing that you linked to. It's, it's subtext underneath the text. It adds to the text. And then you don't have to add a little phrase or a parenthetical aside or something that puts that idea in it. Because by linking this word to this particular thing, you have expressed some opinion about it. Uh, now I still may be out of the ahead of the general public on this. I, I get more complaints about excessive linking than I do compliments on my linking. And if you look at some of my Mac OS X reviews, it's a little bit insane. There'll be a paragraph where more words are linked than not.
0: So you don't think that takes away from it, though?
1: Some people say that it does, but I think it. I think it adds to it. Uh, if, if people don't like it, this is well, a thing here's here's the problem styles. that people
0: here's the problem that people have with this. I'll I'll, I'll sum it up for you, maybe in a way you've probably heard before, and that is. If there's that many links, and some of them take you to a video of Homer Simpson spinning around on the ground, and another one takes you to background information about, uh, you know, Rhapsody. You, you- how do you know which one you should bother to click? It feels like it feels like you're being uh, rickrolled or something. Like, how, how do you know which one is the real link that's going to enhance my reading and how many of these are just something that John Syracuse thought was funny when he reached over to his iPod Touch in the middle of the night to tap in a you know link to Homer Simpson spinning on ground? You know, I mean, that's the problem that people have with this is you, there's no clear way to identify this is a, a, a link that makes the sentence funnier and this is a link that I actually need to read to get some kind of history or value that, uh, or in your mind, they're both equal.
1: Well, I don't get that particular complaint because I, I I understand there's a balance to be struck. There'll be, in 30,000 words, there'll be one Homer Simpson link, right? And 500 <laughs> content links. So the, the chances are very good that 99% of the people will never even see the Homer Simpson thing. That's like the right ratio. You don't, it's not every other link or anything like that. Uh, but the, the thing about heavy linking, especially in technical articles, is that there is a way to find out where the link goes you put your little mouse cursor over it and then the status bar tells you where the link goes and if you see that it's http colon slash something or other then you know it's a wikipedia link but the real thing is that i feel like people who read online understand that it's not mandatory to follow every single link if i write if i underline the word pointer and you know what a pointer is already you're not going to be compelled to click on a link. You're just going to keep reading. But I think, like, yeah, confi- yeah, I
0: think it's confusing. No, I am going to be compelled because maybe there's something that y- something special to f- that I really fully need to experience your article that I didn't know about pointers. I, maybe I, this is some hidden a, I gem. Mean,
1: I wouldn't put... When I have subtext for something, I make it clear that there's subtext because it's not in the sentence. So if you look at a sentence and you say, without the link, I have no idea what he's saying, but with the link... I think the, the the words that I've chosen to link show that yeah that's that phrase that's the one I was wondering about. What do you mean by that? And if if you find yourself questioning what what does this person mean by that, then it's clickable and it will lead you to something that tells you that, or even just mouse over it because you're like, oh yeah, this is leading to that URL that I've seen before and I recognize the website or whatever. That that's how I write, and I I get I don't get people complaining about that they they're clicking on things and feeling booby trapped or rickrolled or anything like that. I, the main complaints I get are is that like. Physically, it's distracting to read because the words are differently colored and underlined. And Oftentimes, they complain about the color of the links that that especially the visited link color might be too light and then it makes a sentence hard to read. That's one of my complaints, actually, on the R site is that the link colors are not great for reading. Uh, but I don't get complaints that because people will just not click on them. I assume that 90% of people don't click on the links at all. And like I said, user styles, I mean, I'm writing to a technical audience, so there are technical readers. They know what user styles are. If you don't like it, you can just apply user style or grease monkey script or whatever the heck you want to do to change those links. So either they're completely gone or they're a different color or they simply don't have underlines. And if you're an RS premier reader, you can get the PDF version. You know, you can print that out on a piece of paper and read it. You can chisel it on a little pyramid. I don't care, but I am writing, (laughs) I'm writing an HTML and that's my medium. And this is the way I write about it. And I, I want to read articles with this type of links. When I read an article that says some sentence, that doesn 't expand on it doesn 't explain what the heck they mean and doesn 't link anywhere that provides that additional information i 'm pissed off because i 'm saying well you didn 't you didn't support that and you 're not leading it 's clear that you have some background in this, but you 're not going to tell me what the background is by linking to it, and that frustrates me so you when my line review comes out, assuming it ever comes out, you should read it and tell me what you think of the linking because you are obviously in the anti linking camp. Some sections are heavier linked than others. Intros in particular seem to be very heavy. Like I'm I'm starting a section talking about the file system, and I'm going to recap. Like, uh, you know, they've done X and Y of the file system. They did this, that, and the other thing, and this, that, and the other thing. Each one of those phrases will be linked back to a thing describing in detail what those things are. And if you remember, oh yeah, I remember when they had a journaling page of S plus.
0: So, yeah, you know, that that sounds like valuable linking to me.
1: But but that but the density of links in that in that paragraph is huge because every single thing I say every noun basically is linked back to a technical description of what that noun is and if you didn't know that you know what journaling was or when they added it or what it meant by that then you can follow a link to you know a huge section of an earlier review or an apical technical note that explains to you if you really want to participate in this in this technical conversation then you can come along. But if you know what journaling is, you're not going to mouse over that journaling to think it's going to be some sort of Simpsons joke about journaling. Because seriously, there's like 1.5 of those per review. If you find them, great. They might amuse you. But they're, you're not going to be rickrolled. You're not going to be booby-trapped. All the links lead someplace informative or add information uh, to, to, the, uh, to the proceedings. And there are huge sections with no links because sometimes there's just nothing to link. You're just talking. Those are the ones I wouldn't muck up with links because I want people to just listen to what I'm saying. And they're not referencing things that they may not know about like uh, the, the opinion sections or like here's what I think about this when I'm explaining something lots of links appear in there because I want I want to bring as many people along as possible so if a lot of people who read ours it's you know it's aspirational there it's a technical site, and on ours, every single person is going to read something they don't understand. Like, if you don't believe this, and if you're not a scientist, go try to read the science articles and understand it. In fact, I wish the science articles had more links, because I read them and I'm like, nope, this is impenetrable to me. I don't even have the basis of knowledge to understand what it is you're talking about. I want to bring everybody along and say, if you want to learn about this nitty-gritty, you know, you're in the internal section of the review, and you want to learn about what the heck we're talking about, if you spend time on this page and follow those links, you can get enough background to be along for the ride, and then have some understanding of the eventual opinions I express about this issue because you understand the uh, the background. So I, I'm fine with being a little bit out ahead of the general public on the pervasiveness of linking. I, I always have been and I continue to be, uh, and the only thing that keeps me going, I guess, is that I do get the occasional feedback that says, boy, you're the only person I've seen on the internet who links the right way, instead of double underlining words that lead to sponsors, or not having any links or having stupid links every time I wanted to know more about something I could just mouse over the word that I expected and learn more about it um, And or I was able to follow your discussion because of how many links you put in that it was really hard but I did it and without those links, those links I would have just skipped this section that's the type of feedback that I get that uh, keeps me going in that regard so that was the final slide 12 slides 4 authors what do you think?
0: well in this case it was 12 slides 1 author
1: well it's 4 total see 3 you
0: know,
1: uh, I'm, 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 uh, shamelessly lumping myself in with them.
0: But you do, you couldn't, you weren't there. You weren't, didn't go to South by Southwest.
1: You're right. You're trying to bring me down, aren't you? No. I'm with them in spirit. Okay. Then that was a, uh, that, the link will be in the show notes. You should watch it. It's a video, but I think they just show you the slides and then you hear the voices. Uh, I actually listened to it on a podcast and I think they do the same thing I did. Although not as clumsily, they read the slides so you can, uh, Know what it is they're talking about. So if you just want to get the audio version of that, that works just as well.
0: I was actually so, hoping you were you were going to tell me like what word processor you used, and if, if you have any special beverage you the, have on your desk. The or, tips
1: and tricks again, yeah, yeah. And With them,
0: um, we think we've already did that, right? BBEdit, Monaco nine point text. So that's how you so write, though. You don't. You know.
1: I write. I write in BBEdit. Occasionally, I do use Scrivener. Scrivener is an awesome app. I find that I use Scrivener more when I'm writing for print because I want to see how it's going to look in print. Uh, and also, I don't know why. This is totally not the case. Scrivener, people write books in Scrivener, right? But I tend, I tend to think of Scrivener as for shorter pieces for me. I don't know why that is. It's just I guess it's because I'm not writing fiction. When I'm writing a BB edit, it's just a big, hairy mess of HTML. And like I said, I've got a big section at the, uh, the bottom that's commented out with little snippets and URLs, and I've got web browsers going. That's another thing that I didn't get to in these slides is that when I write anything technical... It's like 50-50 split between researching a web browser, writing, researching a web browser, writing, looking at WWC video, writing, looking at PDF document, writing, just because every single sentence I write, if I'm going to say anything technical, I'm like, well, do you know that or you just vaguely remember it? And you'd be surprised how much... You only vaguely remember, you know, It's like when, I, when I'm about to write a sentence, oh, you know, everybody knows X, Y, Z. And I'm like, but do you really know that? Or you just have some memory of two years ago, WWC, you think you heard that. Go find that video. Go go to that section of the, of the video. Look at that slide and make sure that guy actually says what you think he says before you continue on to the next sentence. That's why writing this thing takes me for freaking ever, because I don't rely on just my vague memory of how uh, of what I thought for everything that I have any doubt about. I want confirmation and I, and I can't continue until I get confirmation. Uh, So yeah, BBEdit, web browsers, the HTML preview. The HTML preview is is bothering me a little bit because once you get 10, 20, 30,000 words into something and you're at the bottom of it, every time you write something new and the thing refreshes, there's a little blink or flutter in the preview window and that starts to grate on me. So I will also occasionally just have a Safari window with a local HTML file version open and I'll write and write and write and then I'll go back to the Safari window, hit reload, and then read uh, what I've written so far, and then go back. So that's it. Anything more you want to know about my writing environment?
0: I, I think uh, I think I will have more questions. I don't right now, but I know I will.
1: Yeah, I drink water when I'm writing. Is that exciting for you?
0: Do you drink coffee in general? I do not. Any caffeinated I beverages?
1: I did watch that video this week about uh, coffee, a great addiction. I did not find it compelling. I don't think any addiction can be great. Especially a physical addiction. No good. No good. Like, yeah, and it's not even like heroin. When you quit, all you might get is a headache for three weeks. I was not convinced by
0: that. But hey, why would you ever quit? It's great. So that, that then That's is one. the end of the show. It's a good show. We did 100 minutes. There you go. 100 minutes of solid gold Syracuse. No Z. And you can follow, you can follow John Syracuse on Twitter. Which does not he he does not allow apps to tweet for him. It's always him at Syracuse S I R A C U S A John Syracuse. Now you can read his upcoming article online if at line is ever released and if he ever publishes it if he ever finishes. Over an Ars Technica also no Z. Now you got a little theme going here. No Z in your name and no Z in the website that you write on.
1: You are correct, sir.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at, at Dan Benjamin, one word. Also nosy. And if you if you like the show, you can rate it on iTunes. That helps us out. It helps us get new sponsors. It helps new people find the show. It's really great. And uh, where else should we send them? What else do they need to know? That's it. Five by five TV. New shows there. You can check out that build and analyze show with Marco if you don't listen to it already. And that's it. We'll be back next week, though, right? You're in town we will Thursday next week right I think so can you do it you can do Thursday we Probably. may not release we'll re- we'll tape it on Thursday we may not release it until Friday just to keep things sane sure alright then well thanks everybody for tuning in we want to say thanks again to our lovely sponsors to remind you what those are Omnigroup.com and Simplecasts which you can find in the iTunes app store have a good week everybody